exciting time for the Alabama Association for Justice. We're launching Ex Parte Communication, a podcast. We want to give a special thanks to one of our partner firms, Beasley Allen. They purchased this state-of-the-art equipment for us, and we're excited to put it to use. We're hoping to engage, engage our leadership, engage our membership, engage ideas and thoughts about what we do. So if you've got any ideas, please give us a call. You might be on the air next. And again, thank you, Beasley Allen, for helping us put this together. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of the Ex Parte Communications Podcast. The Ex Parte Communications Podcast is the official podcast of the Alabama Association for Justice and a podcast for Alabama trial lawyers about Alabama trial lawyers by Alabama trial lawyers. And today for this first podcast, I am joined by two lawyers who I I'm happy in my young practice to have been exposed to and gotten to know fairly well. Uh, two people I consider um, heroes of mine, in a sense, and mentors uh, in the business that we're in, uh, Mr. Bob Prince and Mr. Josh Hayes. Thank you for joining us. Well, thank you for having us. Yeah, exciting. Perfect host for this, Gavin. Nice job. Well, I don't know about perfect hosts, uh, but I'm the one that they've got, uh, <laughs> and it's the first one, so I'm sure uh, they can fire me if they need to find somebody uh, more well suited or more well qualified, but looking forward to having a conversation with both of you. Um, and I know that it's going to be beneficial to our membership and whoever else uh, might be listening. So that with that being said, um, why don't the two of you just uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourselves? Josh, why don't you go first, buddy? All right. Well, um, Gavin, um, so I've enjoyed working with you on that case, too, and hope we find some others to work on down the road. Um, grew up in Boaz, Alabama, the big city, and uh, went to Alabama undergrad. Worked in politics in Montgomery for about five years, and while I did that, um, got my law degree at Jones. I was afraid I would never come back to Alabama, even though I got admitted twice. I, I just was afraid I wouldn't be a very good 40-year-old law student. So <laughs> trucked on through at night and... Um, Knew I wanted, always knew I wanted to be a plaintiff's lawyer, and thankfully um, that opportunity presented itself and uh, joined Bob's firm back in 2004 and have been here ever since. Fantastic. Um, yeah, Gavin, I grew up in Russellville, Alabama. Mm -hmm. um, then in the ninth grade, we moved over to Cobber County, uh, and I played a little football. Alabama seemed interested in me, so I came down here as a freshman to play football. Um, and that didn't work out. <laughs> when my grades started dropping, I had to decide whether I wanted to be um, in an occupation as a former football player or uh, get a profession. And so I buckled down, stayed in school, got accepted to law school. Tuscaloosa has always felt like home to me uh, since I came here. Uh, with one exception, after I graduated from law school after seven years, I'm, I went down to Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And I was down there for a year, got admitted to the Florida Bar. Didn't like Florida, just didn't like it. Mm. I thought the people were rude, and, you know, I just <laughs> didn't like it. And so, no change of seasons. Came back to Tuscaloosa, opened my own office uh, right across from the university club. Did all kind of cases. And then finally, in around 2000, our firm redefined itself into doing personal injury just about uh, exclusively. And that's when Matt joined and Josh joined in the early 2000s, and we've never looked back. Um, and you mentioned that. Why, you know, 
a lot of our membership is probably uh, interested in what it looks like to start off by themselves uh, and grow mm-hmm. their firm. And uh, you work at what I consider to be a very well-respected firm. I think uh, most people who know the work you do respect the work that you do. Tell us a little bit about the story of this firm. Uh, how did the law firm that we now know as Prince Glover and Hayes grow into the shop that it is now? Sure. I, I think it would be uh, a lot more difficult today for a young lawyer to open up a shop and, sure. and grow because everybody is so specialized. It's not impossible, but it would be more difficult. When I started my practice uh, in 1975, I went around and got on all the appointed lists. I went to other lawyers and said, if the case is too small for you, it's just right for me. <laughs> Tried my first case in federal court after I'd been out about two years. Uh, and I think I objected 17,251 <laughs> times. Um, and my mouth got so cotton mouth I couldn't even speak in my closing argument. The judge called me back in, in it into his chambers when the case was over. And he said, I don't ever want to see you in my court again until you learn how to try a case. <laughs> and so I set that as my goal, and I started reading uh, everything I could get my hands on. I started attending seminars. I went off to Boston for a week and did, did um, at that time, the Trial Lawyers Association put on a seminar a week long on how to try a lawsuit. It had all the famous names there. And I came back and uh, was asked to start help teaching at the law school, coaching, and that really furthered my education more than anything else. And so I did every kind of case. You know, as a lawyer just starting, you're, you have to be an expert in all areas. <laughs> uh, it doesn't matter. I was doing criminal cases, divorce cases, deeds, wills. It didn't matter. But eventually you realize that you only have so many hours in the day uh, to help someone. And so that's when we... Uh, I remember distinctly when I got out of the divorce business and out of the criminal law business, there I, there were a lot of folks that didn't like it, you know, that got, sort of got ill with me because I had, maybe had taken their sister's case, but I wouldn't take theirs. <laughs> you know, some pretty high, some high level people here in town, and I had to turn them down because, you, you know, the, the divorce work will just consume you if you do it correctly. And so, as I mentioned, we decided to do personal injury, sue insurance companies, and that's pretty much all we do now. So the, the way the firm, I would attribute the growth to the firm uh, to, to Matt and Josh. Uh, you know, I think they have added just the perfect elements uh, to our practice. Um, both of them have their own clientele. They both have different personalities, you know, and they're both great lawyers. We did add uh, two other people, Cole Baxter and Blake Williams, uh, you know, and they have certainly contributed to to our growth also. But that we're sort of at a size where we like it uh, for West Alabama. And, you know, we try to help people. And I think we've so far we've helped a lot of folks. Yeah, it's a fantastic practice. I've enjoyed the work that we've gotten to do together. Um, <clears throat> phenomenal lawyers, high character lawyers. Um, and... Uh, of the things you said, it's hard for me to imagine, Bob, that there was a time you didn't know how to try a lawsuit. Mm-hmm. Well, I uh, um, you certainly know how to try one now. Mm-hmm. Um, Josh, we, we talk a lot these days in culture, uh, but certainly in our practice and our membership about diversity. Uh, we often mean a lot of different things, but one of the areas that I think uh, this firm shines is in the area of diversity that's often neglected and that people don't really think about when we're talking about diversity 
and that's diversity in generation. What benefit do you find in having a group of lawyers who are diverse in their makeup in regards to age? Yeah, Gavin, that's an interesting question, and I guess I want to start by piggybacking on some of Bob's last answer. Um, you know, one of the things that made this firm so attractive to me is Bob's, um, at that point, track record. Bob, I may get the, the dates wrong, but probably about 20 years by then of coaching trial teams mm -hmm. at that point, um, closer to 40 now. And so I'm, what I knew by that is that and having been a trial team member, you know the amount of time and investment and energy and love that sure. goes into trial team members. And so I, I knew that if he would spend countless hours teaching lawyers who'd never had a chance to work for him on how to do it the right way, that surely he would want somebody in his own firm knowing <laughs> how to stand up and talk to a jury. And that has, um, man, that has proven itself in spades. It was, one of the greatest blessings of my life is is choosing this firm and it choosing me. And so to have my name on the firm now is just an honor I wasn't sure I was ever going to have, but certainly one that sticks with me and still does um, to this day. But I guess to, to the main point of your question, you know, um, it, it has been just an incredible experience to practice with Bob and Matt, um, you know, Matt, even though he's only 20 days older than me, is an old soul, and I am too, but he's an older soul than I am. And so it, in a lot of respects, I had two mentors right from the jump, and some lawyers never get one. And so I've, mm -hmm. I've just been really blessed by that. And then, you know, seeing uh, Blake and Co. come in who have been here 10 and 12 years or so um, and having the chance to hopefully impart some wisdom and at least the school of hard knocks kind of wisdom what not to do um, to them that I learned from Bob uh, has and Matt have, has just been a, a cool thing to watch um, and it's you know we, Bob mentioned earlier we kind of all have our own clientele around here so we don't always get to work on cases together but this opioid case that you and Bob and I and others have gotten to team up on first of all what an honor but secondly you know, it's my first real chance to work with Bob on a case. Oh, wow. I mean, of, of significance, you know, more than me just going and knocking on his door and saying, what do you think about this language in a complaint? Or I was thinking about approaching a deposition this way. I mean, to, to be in the weeds with him on a case mm -hmm. and you and the Beasley firm has just been awesome seeing him work. So generational aspect I'd never thought about, um, but, but I guess, um, you know, we all have our own set of experiences. Sure. And... Um, Blake can run circles around me on some things. Co can too. Uh, so I, so I, I guess there is a lot of benefit in having people of different ages in the same firm. Bob, how has your practice benefited from um, having lawyers who are at, I'll call it, different stages of practice sure. than what you are? Yeah, I like how you phrase that. <laughs> um, well, you know, having younger lawyers in it, first of all, it broadens your client base because they bring their own clients in, they, they, you know, people at their churches or their social groups have legal problems. And so that's one benefit. But the main benefit to me has been um, the evolution of the internet and how it really is uh, a valuable tool in the practice of law. You know, I can go to them now about software questions, um, you know, which one, what research company should we use? Uh, if we want to do some mass torts, you know, what software should we use? So 
that's really benefited <clears throat> me over the years, and it's kept me competitive to have younger lawyers here. Uh, you know, they're they're more a lot more energetic, and but I still like to learn, and I learn from them. I'm gonna stay uh, in that vein. I'll stay with you for just a moment, Bob. You you've been in this practice um, for over four decades. Is that mm-hmm. right? Right. Um, what are some of the ways you've seen our industry? When I say our industry, I'm talking about trial lawyers specifically morph over the years. Um, what are some of the constants? What are some of the things that have that have changed? Right. Well, when I first started practicing, uh, the the rules of civil procedure were just coming in. Al Heflin had um, pushed that in 1973. They were adopted. Well, I started practicing in 75. Well, the lawyers here, the older lawyers, I was on equal footing with them, you know, because they'd had it their way with the old rules. But that was a major um, development in Alabama practice. And it took a long time for um, the rules to really set in because I, I remember having a case and this client came to see me and they, le- they had left this older lawyer. And uh, I took the case over about midway and I said, well, have they taken your deposition? And they said, oh no. They said, this because they called his name. And said, he doesn't believe in depositions. <laughs> All right? So I said, well, you know, I believe in them, and so we're going to be able to take matter if you believe in them or not, they're yeah, happening. Exactly right. <laughs> and so that's really been a big change uh, is uh, the discovery now of cases. Uh, lawyers used to, before I started practicing, but even when I was clerking, they would just go to the courthouse and try the case. Hmm. I mean, you know, from the seat of their pants. And now that has really changed. <laughs> Um, it's like if you don't know what every witness is going to say and if you don't have a deposition or a transcript or something to help you, uh, you're probably going to lose. So that, that's been the biggest um, change, I think, over the years. It's just the technology, not only the rules of procedure, but how we implement those. I um, mean, you know, you can go now to LexisNexis and um, you can get any kind of a case that you want from any jurisdiction on any point. And, and um, that was never the, uh, the case back when I started practicing. I mean, you know, we had to do research of our own and just get in the books and it would take hours and hours. And you had to shepherdize the cases. That's really been a big change. Another change has been lawyers are specialized now. And they, there weren't so many specialists. But now, you know, you have not only tax lawyers, but you have tax lawyers that only do corporate law, you know, tax mm-hmm. law. So the, the, the practice has really started to specialize a whole lot. Another big change that I've seen has been uh, away from trials. Um, when I first started practicing law, I mean, the first 10 or 15 years of, of my legal career, I probably tried, I don't know, five or six or seven, eight cases a year. I mean, you mm-hmm. know, I, I remember trying a case, getting a, getting a verdict, and walking down the hall, the clerk said, they're waiting on you to strike a jury. And I walked into <laughs> another, you know. And, and today, I mean, you're lucky today if you get to see a courtroom in a year or two. And mm-hmm. why, the reason for that is the alternative dispute resolution. Sure. You know, it came in with arbitration when the Supreme Court of Alabama pushed that on us. And it morphed into mediation. And as you know, Gavin, now every judge orders mediation in yeah. every case. So uh, you don't have as many opportunities to actually go in the courtroom as we used to. That's been a big change. The constants um, are, are, there's one constant, and that is all lawyers are pretty much 
the same amount of intelligence or knowledge about the law. I mean, there's not a big difference. Usually if you pass the bar, there are exceptions to that, but normally law lawyers are about the same amount of smarts, have the same smarts. It's the ones that are more dedicated, and that's always been true. The ones that work their cases up, um, you know, and put some pride into it and put the effort into it, they usually win. And I've noticed that over the years, you know, you, lawyers get reputations. Some defense lawyers are lazy. And if you know that, all you have to do is just keep pushing, keep pushing, they'll settle with you. And so that has been a constant. Um, one other constant that uh, I'm, I'm, I don't like to talk about, but it's when I first started practicing, I remember having a case where I had the law and I had the facts. It was a non-jury case, and I lost. Well, I found out that the other lawyer was the father-in-law of the judge. <laughs> I mean, you know, so coming out of law school, you think if you got the law and facts, you win. Another thing you think is that judges know the law and know evidence. And that's been, unfortunately, been a constant that they don't. You know, there's been some improvement in it. And, and we're really lucky here in Tuscaloosa. Our bar, We've, our judges now are, are really knowledgeable about rules of evidence. My and, old trial coach, Judge Roberts, so we get, we got to say good things about him. He's fabulous. <laughs> uh, you know, and so are the other circuit judges here. That has not always been true. Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember we had one judge, and Bernard Harwood, who was on the Supreme Court, you know, he's one of the local lawyers here, said about this judge, he said, you know, some judges don't know law and evidence, but this judge, and he called his name, said he's not even curious. <laughs> you know, and and I'm, unfortunately, that's I think is still true. But I think the majority of judges out there uh, just don't know the rules of evidence. They know courtroom evidence enough to get by, but um, one of the barriers to the rules of evidence over the years has been judges thinking if it's set outside of court, it's hearsay. Mm. You know, and you know from being on the trial team and studying evidence, that's not true. But, you know, unfortunately, there's still a lot of judges out there that just don't want to take the time to learn either the law or, or the rules of evidence. So that's unfortunately a constant. Josh, what have you seen change over the years with some of the things you've seen stay the same? Yeah, you know, Bob mentioned the fact of the jury trials dwindling, and that, that's been a disappointment probably yeah. of my legal career. I really, you know... I had hoped to have tried hundreds of cases sure. by this point in my career, and it's just hard to hard to do that because we all have the same goal, right? You yeah. try your winners and settle your dogs. Well, the defense wants to do yeah. that too, and when you add that to a few jury weeks, and COVID certainly took a big. Sure. So, but what what we have tried to do around here is, I mean, you know, it's a problem. So, what are you going to do about the problem? We're going to learn through other. We're going to present our case at mediation just like we would at a trial. The other side hates it. They don't want to sit down for an opening statement anymore where we used to drill them with the PowerPoint and video clips. So now what do we do? We send them the PowerPoint ahead of time, and it's up to them if they watch it or not. But, you know, those are, in my view, those are our generations, with with some exceptions, those are our chances really to do trial work. I know it's not in front of a jury, but if, if you've got the decision makers and you can persuade them before you get to a mediation, that's the way it's got to work. You can't, you can't show up at a mediation without, in my view, in a significant case, without doing that kind of work. So that's been a disappointment. I mean, the, as far as uh, 
you know, the, the things that are the same is even though you may not get to the trial as much as you want, you still got to take depositions. Yeah. Uh, Bob mentioned that. I've heard David Marsh talk about it. If, you, if you're not taking depositions, you're not practicing law, and I believe that 100%. You yeah. know, don't get bogged down in the paper discovery battle. Yeah. So that's exactly what the other side wants you to do because they bill by the hour, as we know, and so it all goes back to that model of we must be the ones pushing our cases. Yeah. Because if we don't, judges aren't, defense mm -hmm. lawyers aren't. That's how you get unhappy clients too. So we got to be the aggressor. Got to take depositions. Got to be proactive. Um, those are those. Are, I guess that's what I would point to about staying the same. Yeah, a couple of things. Both of you said that that just made me think of a few things. You know, it's interesting in our business. Uh, oftentimes, it's our our best cases that settle, and our sometimes our worst cases that try, um, yeah. unless the other side's just missing something. That's kind of the paradox sometimes of what we do. But um, one thing that I learned early on, uh, my, my boss, you know, Ron Jones, when I got to the office, I feel like the first thing he told me was get trial dates, get scheduling orders, stick to them, and whatever, do whatever you can to keep them. Yeah. And um, I, I, too, wish I tried more cases up to this point. But the one I got to try was really just from following that advice. Yeah. Um, Bob, when I think of you, I think of – one of the authorities in our practice on trial advocacy, um, just the art of trying lawsuits. Um, I don't know if we ever said it to your face, but I always kind of called you the dean of our trial team uh, when we were getting ready uh, for trial. Um, what are some of the biggest pitfalls that you see younger lawyers, trial lawyers slipping into, uh, and what do you suggest that we do um, including myself in this, maybe I'll learn a few things right here. What do you think we should do to avoid them? Um, yeah, I told somebody one day that if I could just tell the law students one thing that they would take with them, and that is, you know, trying a lawsuit is about the art of persuasion. And to persuade somebody, you have to look at them, you have to look them in the eye, and you have to uh, talk from your heart and open and close even directs and crosses. You cannot do that if you're looking at your notes. And I, I mean, having notes up there, like let's take an opening statement, for example. You're, you're, everybody's smart enough to know when you sat down at home and wrote that, it sounded pretty good or you wouldn't, <laughs> that wouldn't be your finished product. Well, if you take those notes up there with you, your brain knows that right over there, you know, is, is this, and you don't want to mess up, you want to have it perfect, so you start reading, you start glancing at it away from the jury. You know, you don't look at the jury. And that is like having handcuffs on. And the times that I, I've literally gone up before and taken somebody's notes away from them in practice and said, I want you now just to tell me about the case. I said, if you leave something out, the only way the audience, your jurors, are going to know that is if you telegraph it. And, you know, with a big old pause, like when you're looking at your notes, and, and just tell me about the case. And it's not what you say, it's how you say it. So I, I would say that's the main thing. Um, you know, cases are complex, and they go for several days, sometimes weeks. And I know you can't try the whole case without notes, but what you need to do is reduce it to an outline an outline just so that if you forget, you know, if you go blank, you can glance down at maybe one word that says, um, you know, police officer, 
you know, that would tell you that you need to talk about the police officer, what he saw when he went to the wreck scene, who he interviewed. Because past that, uh, you're messing up. And so that is a hard concept to get somebody to really grasp and appreciate. I mean, they hear me, but I don't think they fully understand it. And it took me years before I did. And so if you see a lawyer take a, a notepad up to the podium and put it down and page after page and looking at it down, you know, and what's my next question? The jury's seeing that. You're not communicating with them, even on direct examination. The, the, the perfect direct to me, well, you'd never look at your notes. I mean, you, surely you know the case well enough what, and you know what you want that witness to say. And all you have to do is act like it's the first time you heard it. And like you're in the lounge somewhere, or you're at home with a friend. You know, you went to the game. How was it? You asked these open-ended questions to get them talking. How was it? What did you see? What impressed you the most? You know, blah, blah, blah. You wouldn't lead. Lawyers lead all the time because they, I think they don't trust the, the witness. <laughs> and the jurors have, you know, by the way, you know this, but we spent, our bar, the plaintiff bar, has spent millions of dollars on focus groups, uh, on mock trials, juror interviews and we came away we took the nuggets from that and one of the nuggets is that law, uh, jurors don't trust lawyers <laughs> and so if you get in the board dire or and you're open and you're arguing too much they'll shut down on you they they know that you're representing somebody and you're not being objective and so because of that i think lawyers a lot of times make mistakes in their open in their directs especially because they're tied to their notes to such an extent that the jury just gets turned off. You're not you're not communicating with them. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, I could maybe talk about some other things, but if there was one thing that everybody could improve on, that would be it. Take an outline only when you do your examinations. That's good. Yeah. Both of you uh, have served our association, the Alabama Association uh, for Justice as presidents. Um, and Josh, we'll start with you, but I want both to hear from both of you on this. Why have you felt it important to serve Alla J? Uh, and what would you say to someone out there in Alabama or any other state for that matter uh, who might say, I, I don't see the importance of serving with my local trial lawyer association? Yeah, well, um, honor of my career to serve as president of Alla J. I love the people, love the staff, love lawyers, especially love plaintiff's lawyers. And so I... To, to be on the side of the widows and orphans every day, hmm. uh, the downtrodden, the least of these, those hmm. without a chance in the world unless somebody stands up and talks for them. I mean, what more f from what more could you ask for? So hmm. such, an, such an honor that, that I've tried real hard not to waste my opportunity. Or if you're a, a fan of Alexander Hamilton, <laughs> I'm not throwing away my shot, right? So... I, you know, I would encourage anybody who's on the fence of Allergy service, just give it a try. Give us a year, invest, come to Bill Reading Day, be on the legislative committee, participate in the conference calls, care about your own practice enough to want to give financially to help yourself and your clients. Uh, there, there are infinite ways that Allergy needs your help. Um, and, and I guess the scary thing of it, Gavin, if not us, then who? Yeah. Because 
you know, you've been in Montgomery enough to know, and Bob and I walked the halls of the legislature, and a lot of the listeners have too. Um, we we are the only group looking out for the consumer in Alabama. There are consumer advocate groups that don't have any money. Hmm. We're fortunate to have made a little money and can those of us willing to pony up have, have been generous with our money too to try to move the needle and to try to keep the practice of law alive because I, I do not think the average um, person and maybe even the average LJ member knows just the forces that we fight every day in Montgomery. Sure. And, uh, you know, hats off to Ginger and Justin and the team. They, they do more with less than any staff in the country, and yeah. uh, we need to support them because our, our livelihoods depend on it, and more important than that, our clients depend on it. Yeah. Um, spent some time in the car ride up here just talking about some of the, the forces that are often um, coming for our clients, for our practice, for consumers. Uh, and I have to say to, to you, Josh, I, I'm, I think I'm probably involved in many ways these days, <clears throat> at least to the level that I am at LJ, uh, because you said something to me one day in a conference room. And so, um, yes and amen to everything you said. Um, Bob, what, what say you? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, let me just echo some of the things that Josh said. Um, I was fortunate enough, I guess, or, or maybe unfortunate, to go through uh, the shift uh, from Alabama being a Democratic, uh, our Supreme Court were, were all Democrats, one party, to now it's one party Republican. If But for Ginger and the administration down there, the people that she's had with her, Kathy, the, and all the others, mm-hmm. they have fought relentlessly in the legislature against all odds. And if you think that it's bad now, it could have been 10 mm-hmm. times worse uh, if everybody hadn't put their shoulder to the to the grindstone and, and really put the effort forward, gra- a grassroots. So do lawyers need to join ADLA? Um, do they need to join ALA, you know, the Association for Justice? Absolutely. If they don't, who will stand up for the people that get injured or get, yeah. uh, you know, are victims of, of big corporations and fraud and that sort of thing? There's nobody out there except us. We're the last line, first line and last line of defense. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. I had a conversation with a young lawyer uh, just the other day who was talking about how bad they thought things were. Uh, and I said, well, you need to talk to some of your friends and some of our peer mm-hmm. states because it can be worse. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we've done a really, really good job, I think, of uh, carterizing the wound, stopping the bleeding, um, and doing the work that we can uh, in our state against all odds, uh, right. you put it. Um, we're going to pause right here uh, to hear a word from Alajay, uh, and we'll be right back for uh, a new segment that we have on the podcast. to take a short break to give a shout out to one of our fellows and today's highlight is preferred capital preferred capital is is handled in alabama by two of my very best friends jason quarter and joe freeman jason had my job in ohio and did an outstanding job but boy i'm glad that he's here with us now we love you jason we love you joe thank you for all you do thank you for helping us fund our clients and help them when they need our help Preferred Capital. Give them a call. 
our next segment uh, is the portion of the show that we're going to call the War Room. Uh, and I've asked each of you, both of you, to come uh, armed with your favorite war story from your practice as a trial lawyer. Uh, so I'll let you have the floor and invite our listeners to hop into the war room with us. Uh, Josh, we'll start with you. Yeah, so uh, this is a little dangerous section uh, segment <laughs> on the show. I, I know uh, there'll be some good editing, maybe not from me, but from some of our members. But look forward to hearing these stories from everybody. You know, probably the, the thing that stands out to me is I, there was one trucking case I had in Hale County. Good place to be, as we Not all know. Not a bad place to have a trucking case. Yeah, it, it, bad facts. I, I didn't, the, thankfully for my folks, they weren't injured terribly, uh, but there was all kind of bad conduct on the other side. Judge Wiggins was the judge. He got an early trial date. Taking the deposition of the truck driver, and I had the photographs from the scene that the troopers took. Uh, there is a suspicious-looking woman in the photographs, and... <laughs> I had a theory about who she was and where he might have found her from having done a lot of trucking work before. And he denied anybody being in the cab with him, um, mm. you know, said it wasn't her. You know, he, he didn't have anybody in the car. Even when I showed him the photos of her standing by her, herself, he'd never seen her before. wasn't until I showed him the photos of them together standing very close together that he finally admitted who she was, but he made up a fake name and, he, this is all on video, and he's kind of smirking at me, and I can tell he's not being truthful, of course. And so my investigator had already tracked her down. We knew she was in the Tuscaloosa County Jail, and so we shortly thereafter noticed her deposition, took her deposition in jail. <laughs> they unbelievably still had her handcuffs on her as she's trying to describe. And so I'm like, okay, Missy, so what's going on in that cab? I, of course, have my own theory because he runs – off the road you know I have I have some guesses of what I, and she said oh no no it was nothing like that you see what happened was Roy Nell was mad because I had used all the cocaine that he had back in the sleeper berth and so he was punching at me through the sleeper berth as we were riding down the road and that's when he ran off the road and your client went into the woods so uh, at trial, uh, they didn't settle that. They case. did not settle that case. Good I mentioned gracious. my folks were not very injured. At trial, uh, Roy Nell, uh, the only thing you know, we wore him out. I mean, his driving record was awful. And the only thing he said to me after the trial, while we were waiting on the jury to come back, was, "Hey, do you mind if I take that blow up?" He wanted the <laughs> photo of him and Missy together on the side of the road. So. That was a pretty good one. Good outcome in the case? Uh, good outcome in the case. Okay. Yeah. Glad to hear it. Yes. Bob, we'll see you top that. You know, I was thinking, <laughs> um, I don't know if I can, but Gavin, you know, I was thinking as Josh was talking and I was thinking about your question and there are three or four different stories from my practice I could tell, but there's one story that circulated from another venue in Alabama that has been um, confirmed by several lawyers from that area to me. And I really think it's worth telling. You know, lawyers running cases have been a problem for years. Sure. And there still is. I mean, now we have advertising, and it's not as blatant as it used to be, but it, before advertising, or, you know, in the early years of advertising, lawyers had to, they would be very novel in how they got cases. I mean, you know, they would run cases. They would either have pay people or whatever to get the case to come in. Well, there was this one lawyer in this, county in Alabama that had a really strong reputation for running cases. They tried to get him several times, you know, and brought him before the grievance committee and 
each time he would he was able to slip away. Well, there was a really bad um, case that happened where this young man was paralyzed and he was, you know, in a coma. A truck had hit him, and everybody in the county wanted a case. I mean, obviously, you know, an eighteen wheeler hit somebody, and so all of a sudden, uh, after he'd been in the hospital about a week, this lawyer filed suit for him. And and didn't it was not a best friend, it was not a guardian, it was directly from the client. Okay, and so they said, we got him. You know, we'll bring him for the grievance committee. It's obvious he did not have permission for this. That boy's been in a coma, you know, and he couldn't possibly sign a contract, and, you know, no way. So they bring the lawyer in to the grievance committee, and they said, okay, and I'll change his name, you know, to because I do, he does have relatives, and one of them's here in Tuscaloosa. And so I, they bring him in, and they said, okay, Bill, um, you have filed this lawsuit for this, you know, Mr. Smith, and he's in a coma in the hospital, and you filed it directly, you, like he's the client, and you couldn't possibly have a contract. How, on what authority, why did you file this thing? And he looked at him and he said, you know, yeah, he said, I felt so sorry for that young man. He said, I went out to the hospital and I was sitting with him and I was holding his hand and we were praying and all of a sudden he opened his eyes and looked at me and he said, sue him, Bill. And then he <laughs> went back into his coma. <laughs> I mean, uh, that takes the cake. And I mean, that story has been confirmed to several lawyers up there. said, so that's exactly what happened. <laughs> sue him. <laughs> oh, uh, <laughs> that's fantastic. Yeah. Well, uh, guys, thank you so much for joining uh, us for Ex Parte Communications. Um, it's been a fantastic time getting to catch up with you. And um, let me say again how much just I think of both of you and uh, thankful for your joining me today and thankful for what you've uh, meant already to my, my young law practice. Um, with that being said, we're going to sign off. Thank you for joining us for Ex Parte Communications, uh, the official podcast of the Alabama Association for Justice.